Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Jan Doolittle-Wilson is back to talk about Danny and, of course, one of our favorite topics, Miri Mazdur. If you're looking for Steve and I covering Season 8 of Game of Thrones, we are over at Double Dragon. Search for that wherever you search for podcasts. We are also using that feed to cover House of the Dragon episode by episode. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Jan Doolittle-Wilson. Well, Jan, I think that this next chapter, Danny 9, I think that this chapter is maybe on the short list for the climax of the book. You know, we talked about the climax of the book before. It's odd how much Martin likes to leave off page, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But... The story has certainly turned. Danny is kind of goes into full dragon mode this chapter. If this is not the climax of the book, it's absolutely in, in the conversation for one of maybe two or three chapters that could be called the climax. I mean, it's definitely the beginning of the birth of a new Danny, right? Right. And, you know, certainly the last chapter is where she fully emerges, but this is the beginning of that and something very distinct. Um, she's, she's pulling away from one thing and something else is being born. And I think, you know, of course, part of that, we talked about this before with so many of the female characters in game of Thrones, the men around them have to die <laughs> for them to really come into their own. Sure. Right. Because yeah. this is a patriarchal world and, you know, women, um, aren't assumed to be leaders, right? They have power only indirectly through the men in their lives. And, you know, Danny has gone through this entire book now where the powerful men around her have pretty much fallen off. And this is the last of it, right? Do you think she... that that's something of de- a little bit deceptive? I mean, I think that 99 times out of 100, if the male dies, then that's bad for the woman, all of the women in his life in the ancient world. You know, it's like, you know, what's going to happen to the wife of the King. If the King dies, then that person's probably, maybe that person's killed. Maybe that person goes into obscurity. Martin really likes to use that guy as a husk. Yeah. And so the woman can kind of emerge in a way that's very cathartic, you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, you could name a variety of characters that that happens to, right? Mm-hmm. And so this isn't normally how it happens in history. You're right. Um, I mean, you as- do have characters like Penny, who's like, yeah, her her man dies. 
so much yeah. the worse for her, you know? Right. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out that, you know, it's, it's easy to look at the stories of all of the powerful women in, in Martin's world and maybe get an odd perspective on what actually the consequences are. Right. When someone like Khal Drogo dies. Um, right. And typically this is not supposed to happen, right? What was her destiny as the Khaleesi? Yeah. Her destiny was to be taken to the, the crones, yeah. right? To live out the rest of her life <laughs> right. surrounded by these other older women, uh -huh. right? Because once her husband dies, her job is done, uh -huh. right? Her, her purpose is gone. Um, Something that she's what, kind of been putting off. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, even the blood riders at the end say to her, we'll stay until after the funeral. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then once the funeral's over, we'll escort you, mm -hmm. you know, to, to this place. And that's your fate. And that's what's yeah. waiting for her. That's what is supposed to happen. The other thing that I wanted to note here is that, you know, we're talking about the death of the male. But oftentimes, you know, if, 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 the, if maternal mortality has a parallel to the ancient world, it's one every eight. Yes. One of every eight pregnancies results in the death of the mother. Yes. Pregnancy in, in many ways is looking down the barrel of a possible death. Right. More often than not, it's going to result in, you know, the, in a new life. But it happens enough that you would that you should be thinking about the possibility of death. Right. Yeah. But and there's another strange inversion here. Right. It's not only that. Mm -hmm. OK, the call dies. And instead of, you know, Khaleesi just kind of fading away, you know, with the other old women, she becomes this this brand new person, like, you know, the phoenix rising from the ashes. Mm -hmm. And the other inversion here is what you just said, right? The idea that her son is sacrificed and she emerges mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when in fact with a male child in her womb, it should be the opposite in the society, right? Where right. she is basically the vessel, right? She gives birth to the son right. and then she dies. And so everything is kind of inverted uh, in really interesting ways. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and read my synopsis and we jump right in. Okay. Danny's dreams are overshadowed with the thought of dragons. The repeated refrain is, you don't want to wake the dragon, do you? She feels ice and darkness and death behind her as she tries to make it to the red door. She dreams of sex with Drogo. She dreams of Viserys's death. She dreams of her grown son and her brother Rhaegar. When she wakes, she feels immense pain and crawls for her dragon eggs. She sleeps and wakes again wanting to hold her dragon eggs. Then, when finally conscious, she asks about Jorah and Drogo and her son. She learns that her son is dead. According to Miri, the child was monstrous and had been dead for years. She demands to see Drogo. He's alive, but lifeless. The god's wife explains that Danny knew the price, that Drogo's men were murderers and rapists, and that the stallion who mans the world will make no one suffer. Danny has Miri removed and tries to wake Drogo from his stupor. When nothing works, she smothers his face with a pillow. Oh my gosh. Mm. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a lot. <laughs> oh goodness. There's so much that happens in this chapter. And so much, so much. The first few pages are just Danny's dream where you kind of see 
in this ethereal tone her transforming into a dragon right yeah so we Does were it talking remind you a little of some bit. of brand's dreams earlier a little bit a little bit i kept thinking of brand when i read this it's funny that you say that because i was wondering as i was reading this i was like okay i know this is a fantasy narrative but how often have we actually seen magic in this first book Yes. We saw it in the prologue because, you know, they have their magical monsters, right? Right. Brand's dreams we know in retrospect are magic, but it's very subtle. Yes. And then you get to this chapter and it's like magic is on full display. (laughs) We knew that there were images of dead people or big wolves or a fiery man walking around with Miriam as do or dancing around. Right. And then we hear tell of Danny's dragonish baby. And it's very clear. It's very clear in this chapter that this is a story about magic. Right. But we're pretty much toward, <laughs> we're getting right to the end of the book. Right. So. And then right. it, it bursts forth. Right. You're right. Everything about sort of all of the stuff about Bran's dreams is sort of flooding back. And I maybe because of this, you're starting to rethink, oh, maybe Bran's dreams were magic. You're right. We just get these, these, this is again, what makes these books so masterful in so many ways, because you get to the end and think, oh, mm-hmm. the signs were there. They mm-hmm. were there, but it was introduced so gradually. Um, I, I love that. And then you start learning right in the next couple of books about, you know, warging and mm-hmm. um, the different powers and, um, of course, tons of dragon lore. And yeah, it's great. Against this backdrop, Jorah in this chapter kind of functions as the skeptic. Yes. <laughs> I think for a lot of... in Bran's But chapters, he has doubt in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. In Bran's chapter, Maester Lewin is sort of functions mm. as the skeptic. He's like, yeah, dreams are dreams. Right. Um in this chapter, old man is crazy. Yeah, that's right. These are just old ladies' tales. <laughs> but in this chapter, Jorah feels the egg, and it just feels cold to him. Whereas Danny yes. can feel the heat. Very significant. And then also, even though Jorah won't say it aloud, Danny suspects that Jorah has seen something he can't explain. Mm. And what Jorah says is, "Look, I just saw shadows. That's all. That's all I saw. Shadows." Right. But Danny gets the sense like, no, you probably saw what I saw because I'm pretty sure I saw something more than shadows. Right. I think you should do a whole podcast on different forms of magic in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, that would that's be so much idea. fun, wouldn't it? Oh, there's so much. There's it's- so much. And, you know, what forms are considered acceptable within mm-hmm. certain cultures and which forms are forbidden? Um, yeah. How is that different, you know, in terms of Westeros versus Essos and different places in Essos? Yeah. And I think that would be, we could talk about Melisandre. And see, I'm saying we, assuming yeah. that I would be a part of this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It would be so great to talk about the different. I mean, based on this first book, you're not really certain how much magic is in this. Like, yeah, like the weirwood trees could just be trees, right? I mean, there's nothing, but they're right there. It's right. It's they're really important, and uh, you know, people like Asha tell us that you know that the gods are listening, and I mean, there's there's tons of stuff baked in, but it's subtle and disguised enough in this first book 
that when you meet someone like Mel in the next book, it's kind of shocking. You know, you, right. it's a little bit, whoa, whoa, what kind of story are we dealing with here? Because right. uh, there's, a, there's a major shift. I want to talk about Miri again. Okay. Yep. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I feel like I should just read a little bit about uh, of what happens with Miri. Okay. She shifts pretty abruptly, doesn't she, in terms she of does. her tone? <laughs> a full full Miri comes out in this chapter. Uh, yeah. The mask comes off. The mask comes off. He lives, said Miri Mazdor. You asked for his life. You paid for life. Mm. This is not life for one who was as Drogo was. His life was laughter and meat roasting over the fire pit and a horse between his legs. His life was an auric in his hand and bells ringing in his hair as he rode to meet an enemy. His life was his blood riders and me and the son I was to give him. Miri Mazdor made no reply. When will he be as he was? Danny demanded. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, said Miri Mazdor. When the seas go dry and the mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens again and you bear a living child, then he will return, and not before. Danny gestured at Sir Jorah and the others, Leave us. I would speak with this Maggie alone. Mormont and the Dothraki withdrew. You knew, Danny said when they were gone. She ached inside and out, but her fury gave her strength. You knew what I was buying, and you knew the price, and you let me pay for it. It was wrong of them to burn my temple, the heavy, flat-nosed woman said placidly. That angered the great shepherd. This was no God's work, Danny said coldly. If I look back, I am lost. You cheated me. You murdered my child within me. The stallion who mounts the world will burn no cities now. His Kalasar will trample no nations to dust. I spoke for you, she said, anguished. I saved you. Saved me, the Lazarine woman spat. Three riders had taken me, not like a man does a woman, but from behind as a dog takes a bitch. The fourth was in me when you rode past. How then did you save me? I saw my God's house burn, where I had healed good men beyond counting. My home they burned as well. In the street I saw piles of heads. I saw the head of a baker who made my bread. I saw the head of a boy who I'd saved from the dead-eye fever. 
Only three moons passed. I heard children crying as the riders drove them off with their whips. Tell me again what you saved. Your life, Mary Mazdor laughed cruelly. Look at your cow and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. And that, mm-hmm. that's quite a, that's quite a movement. That's, <laughs> that is quite a movement. It is. It reminds me of where she throws back to Danny. You don't ask a slave, you tell a slave. Yeah, right. And so that part where Danny says, this isn't life. This yeah. isn't anything like life. And then, of course, when Danny says, but I saved you, what did you save? I saved your life. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is life. Mm-hmm. You just said life has to be quality, right? Otherwise, it's not life. I've had everything taken from me. Yeah, I don't have life either. And I love how she turns that around and just kind of shows the hypocrisy, right, of Danny's statement in that moment. Uh-huh. You just acknowledge that your call has no life. Well, I don't either. So you saved nothing. And I think that what could be lost here, because, you know, we've read the whole story and we've watched the show and we know what happens with Danny and we know that she struggles with, you know, this sort of dual nature of Targaryens and all this. What I think could be lost here is that all of the sudden, for me at least, I'm seeing Danny in a new light. Mm. I'm seeing her not as the well-meaning, you know, silver savior or whatever. All of the sudden, I'm I'm looking at, I'm hearing Miri Mazdur's voice and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she's right. She's right. Why? Yep. How could I ever have rooted for Danny's stallion who will mount the world that's that would have been horrible i could totally see from miri mazdor's perspective how what she did even though call it murder call it whatever you want this was the right thing to do from her perspective yes she's absolutely right which makes danny the villain it's it's just it's like a it's like a I don't know. I feel like I've I've seen something revealed in this conversation that wasn't revealed before. Do you think I, I've thought about this because I think that at least in the show version, and admittedly it's it's been a while since I've watched it, but I mean Mary is absolutely the villain, right? If you just even look at kind of the contrast yeah. between how they are presented, sure. you know, even in the language of the book, Mary is mm-hmm. heavy and stout and flat nosed. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know unattractive, uh, darker skin. Then you've got Danny, the gold and silver, you know, Mm -hmm. um, beautiful, young, right? So they're very much contrasted. But in the- Mary even has bad hair, like perpetually bad hair. hair, Right, there's nothing attractive about her. (laughs) Um, I wonder if if you read the book carefully, I don't think that it's as stark in the book. Right. Because how can you read those passages you just read and not come away with the understanding of, well, yeah. Right. I mean, not only you've got this this woman who was not just a a priestess, Mm -hmm. right, not just a God's wife. She was highly trained Mm -hmm. and she was not only trained by, you know, blood mages, but she trained with Master or Maester Lewin, not Lewin, um, Marwin. Yeah. Right. She was trained 
by a, a maester from the citadel. So she had all of this knowledge and wisdom, right? She even acknowledges that, uh, you know, Mag, Mag, is it Maggie? I keep saying Magi, um, means wisdom, right? right? So you've got this woman who has spent her life gathering knowledge to do nothing more than help her people. Well, she's a right? world traveler. She's a scholar. She's a healer. She's a priestess. I mean, she's all these things wrapped a into one. A light to her people, right? She's absolutely... You know, she she is in this village healing people and making their culture work. Right. Um, and peaceful people, peaceful, the lamb people. Right. Right. <laughs> That's right. They're not the conquerors here. And but all of a sudden, you know, these writers ride into town and she's a dog all of a sudden. Yes. And she she's you know, she's bright enough to see how the world really works. And she, whatever power she has at her disposal to make the world a better place, she she thinks that's what I have to do. That's what I've devoted my life to do. And if I can kill this future tyrant, I'm going to do it. Right. And she very much sets herself up as the protector of the flock. That's right. And and if you if you can get on board with that, even if you view her as a gray character, right? Even if you view her as, you know, she's not villainous, she's not heroic, she's like a lot of Martin's characters, she's complicated. But her complication reflects Danny's darkness. Mm. And in such a way that has not happened before. Yes. And I think that this is kind of like her Elena Terrell moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She could have just said, oh, no, that was never my intention. I'm so sorry this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, she she could have scaled back, but she just full force. You know, she doesn't deny it. She doesn't even try to deny it. When Danny says, you knew. Yep, I did. Yeah. I knew exactly. Uh, you, you know, you came in. These people burned my home. Yeah. They killed my people. Um, of course, this is what I did. And in that moment, I think she is revealing how terrible, you know, Danny's actions were, how terrible mm-hmm. the actions of, of the Kalasar were. And yet, I think that you could also point out here that Danny, Danny was making choices, right? So she said, mm. do it. You see, what, whatever magic you have, do it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to warn you about this. Yes. But it, yes. I'm going to give you what you want. It was almost like, I don't care about you enough to not give you what you want. In yeah. fact, I kind of hope you ask for it because I think you kind of deserve it. Yes. But yes. But at the end of the day, she is a slave and she does what her master tells her to do. And what's, what she knows that the master doesn't know is exactly what the consequence will look like. Um, yeah. But she's just smarter than anyone else in this in this story so far. So... And I don't think Danny still has accepted any responsibility here, right? Mm. I mean, all throughout these passages, it's Danny saying, well, again, this is the price for the Iron Throne. It's for a larger goal. Mm -hmm. Or, no, I didn't want this, Mm. right? Even though I heard pretty clearly from Drogo that this is what was going to happen. No, I I didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, my baby died because Jorah took me into the tent. Or, you know, this happened because of this evil witch she still isn't recognizing that actually you weren't just a witness. You were pretty culpable, right? Yeah, this you is not, what Danny thinks. She thinks you participated in this, you know, right. that, that none of this, you know, 
was something that you just were kind of along for the ride for, right? Yeah, this and is a this is a major show difference. Here, here it, we hear it really is. Danny say this. She says, "Sir Jorah had killed her son." Danny knew. <laughs> He had done what he did for love and loyalty, yet he had carried her into a place no living man should go and fed her baby to the darkness. Yes. He knew it too. He fed her baby. Yes. Yeah. So she is totally like, you know, later on, Miri says, you didn't think it was the horse. That was the lie you told yourself. Yes. You knew the price. And Danny doesn't like protest it's not like at that point she's like did i know i I, you know it's sort of it's a little she's a little bit murky here right um the other thing i wanted to point out about danny's shift here is that she finds out that this girl that she had saved prior and sort of taken as a slave was then raped several times and killed yes and then she says, it was a cruel fate, Danny said, yet not so cruel as Magos will be. I promise you that by the old gods and the new, by the lamb god and the horse god and every god that lives. I swear it by the mother of mountains and the womb of the world. Before I'm done with them, Mago and Kojago will plead for the mercy they showed Eroe. Mm. The Dothraki exchanged uncertain glances. Khaleesi... The handmaiden Eerie explained, as if to a child, Jocko is a cow now, with 20,000 riders at his back. She lifted her head. I am Daenerys Stormborn, the blood of Aegon, the Conqueror, and Magor the Cruel, and old Valeria before them. I am the dragon's daughter, and I swear to you that these men will die screaming. Now bring me to Caltroco. <laughs> mm. Okay. So interesting, isn't it? How she describes herself. She's not Khaleesi there. She's not Khaleesi. Right. She says she rises. <laughs> what does she say? She goes full Targaryen. She says <laughs> full Targaryen. I am heir to the Iron Throne. <laughs> I am the descendant of Megor the Cruel. She names him. Right. <laughs> Why name Megor the Cruel? Well, because for her to be full Targaryen is to be this creature of dragonish vengeance. Yes. She wants these men to die screaming. Yes. She wants to torture them to death. It's not like she's like a a, a person of justice. She's a person of vengeance. Vengeance. And so when she goes full Targaryen, I think that in this chapter, <laughs> she absolutely finds her voice. And it is scary. It's scary. But you know what's interesting is no one quite believes her yet. Right. I mean, how many times does Dora say, oh, you have a gentle heart? Mm-hmm. And she kind of spits back, I don't have a gentle heart. Mm-hmm. It sounds petulant yeah, in those like earlier little, chapters. Yeah, like this doesn't sound petulant, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it reminds me again, if we if we flip back to the dream, mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting, not only just the change in, in language, right? Um, going from you don't want to wake the dragon, which is something her brother mm-hmm. constantly said to her. And it was a threat then, right? That yeah. it kind of cowled her into obedience and and doing what her brother wanted her to do. And then we, you know, get progressively narrower, right? We, we eliminate words from that sentence until we get to want to wake the dragon, wake the dragon, the dragon. 
And now this idea of waking the dragon is not something that is a threat to Danny. It's a threat from Danny. And it's all right here in this dream to the point where the visor is lifted and it's her. Mm-hmm. It's no longer Rhaegar. Yeah, Rhaegar's not the last dragon. She is. He's not the last dragon. And so what I think is so interesting is she knows. I, this is my interpretation. I think she knows exactly what she's going to do when she wakes up. She hasn't maybe fully grasped, grasped that idea yet, but I think the plan is in motion because when she wakes up, what is the first thing she does? She crawls toward the eggs. Yeah, she wants the eggs. Like she doesn't ask for Drogo. She doesn't ask for uh, Rego, her son. Mm-hmm. She does ask she for, for Jorah, but I think she asked for Jorah because she wants to order him to bring her the eggs. Yeah, she it's crawls those for eggs. the eggs. She specifically asked for the eggs, and when she says, "You know, when it goes, uh, you know, you don't want to wake the dragon, do you?" Until the language changes to just the dragon. Yeah. It's this it's this transition from her brother's cruelty, right? The the dragon always represented Viserys's cruelty. And then when she becomes the dragon, it's in a moment of cruelty, you know? It's it's yes. like she's going to be cruel to these, you know, horrible horrible men, right? But she's going to show them her cruelty in a way that her brother never could. It was, it's, you know, her brother was always a shell of a Targaryen. Right. And empty she, threats and empty yes, promises. To the core of her being, she is that person. Um, and I think you're right about this chapter being the apex because she knows, she knows exactly who she is now. She knows, I think she knows what she's going to do. She knows the plan. She knows what her power will be, especially when those dragons right. hatch. But nobody else knows yet. And yeah, yeah. you can just see it, right? She's able to have that coldness and that vengefulness and that speech about, of course, I will wreak havoc on these men and I will take my revenge. Everybody's kind of like, oh, well, all right, whatever. And she knows that she's going to do it. It's now a matter of, I will show them. I know what it is, but that last chapter then is, here's the proof. And that's what makes that moment so great. She's already there. It's just a matter of showing everybody else that she's there. Mm-hmm. And that's when it happens. I think that I think that I, I want to sort of take a step back just for a moment and note that in this chapter, I absolutely see Danny as sort of the villain that she will eventually become. But I don't fully believe it yet. Like I know with my head, not my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm it's not going to be too long before I'm rooting for her again, right? I'm Right. I'm going to root for her against the slavers. I'm going to root for her against the wise men of Karth. Yeah. I'm going to root for her against almost everyone who wants to do her harm. I'm going to root for her. Yeah. And it's one of these situations where I think that it, it'd be tempting to sort of like, oh, well, now we have our villain. But that's not right. the story that Mar- that's not the kind of story that Martin likes to tell. Right. Right. She's going to be the protagonist for another five books, at least. Right. right? So. Right. 
I mean, you certainly see, I, I agree with you, you know, you read through this chapter, especially, and you think it lives there from the beginning. You know, I, I don't think the show was as successful. Um, I think the the transition was maybe too abrupt, yeah. but it was there, you know, it was there all along. Just again, this idea of it's my heritage, it's my right, it's my blood. Um, this is who I am. Um, I'm. This is my destiny, right? I will, mm-hmm. you know, destroy those who get in my way. And the crucial lesson she learns from Mary, I think, is how best to go about it, right? You don't win loyalty by Mm -hmm. re-enslaving people and saying they belong to you. How do you do it? You free them and say, okay, you have a choice, right? Um, I will free you. You can go on your way. Or if you stay with me, I promise that I will protect you. And I've got these dragons now, (laughs) right? So she is very she gets a lot wiser as she goes through and she learns how well, to earn loyalty. That's true. And at this early stage and she's still very young and yes. And makes so many more mistakes, but yeah. this is a big, this is her turning point where she goes yeah. from, you know, I kept writing in my notes. It, it's amazing how quickly she transitions from maiden mother crone. <laughs> I mean, she just flies through those stages yeah. where sure. she, you know, very young, naive, innocent, completely unfamiliar with how mm. the world works. And then she goes through this, this mother stage where now I'm getting my power, not so much through, you know, yeah. my relatives, but through the child I will bear. Yeah. And then she becomes barren. That's right. And she transitions to the idea of the powerful crone who has sort of given this monstrous birth yeah. Right. That's Which gives her power through her dragon. So I, I was thinking a lot about the mother maiden crone idea, you know, through various female characters uh-huh. and how they're feared one, because they're powerful, but two, how they really kind of invert and pervert in many ways, what women are supposed to be. That's interesting. I'm so glad you point. I, I hadn't thought about that at all. It's sort of this, um, it's like she goes through this fast forward uh, treatment and the reason why that's so fascinating to me is because there's a little bit of a time discrepancy in this tent. Mm-hmm. So not only does she transition from, you know, maiden to crone seemingly overnight, although we're not sure how much time has actually passed. But when the baby's born, Miri says the baby has been dead for years. Mm, yeah. You know, it had death worms inside of it. And, you know, you get the idea that it's it's maggots and whatnot. So there's almost something weird with like the the tent is a place of death where no man should enter. That's what she says. But, you know, people long dead are coming back to life. Maybe, you know, the the graves cast a long shadow is what Miriam Mazdur said. And so the, the fetus has been dead for years. Well, how can that be? It's there's something weird happening, something distortive about time that's going on in this ritual. And do you think you just made me think of this, Anthony? Do you think it's related to her mantra about if I look back, I am lost? But then she recognizes to go forward, she has to go back, and so there's that time element to that as well. I want the was red wondering. door, which symbolizes the childhood. Yeah. So there are all kinds of distortions and juxtapositions with time i think especially in the danny chapters yeah the 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 dream is interesting because she's being chased by something cold 
that's mm-hmm. rep- that represents something like death that's behind her. And she's trying to pursue the red door, which I think represents her innocence or her childhood or something like that. Right. Um, the house she grew up in had a red door. She, so she's racing for that, but all of a sudden she becomes a dragon in her dream. <laughs> right. And now she's yeah. flying over the sea and she's looking at, you know, at Westeros with its stone houses and whatnot. So I'm not sure if she, I mean, she, I think she thinks that she's pursuing the past, but in reality, she's, she's becoming something else. She's transforming into something else. Right. I'm not sure what's happening here. Um, because, you know, by the end, by the time the dream's over, I think she's got a pretty good idea about what has to happen with these eggs. Yes. So there's something in the dream that maybe wasn't revealed to us that kind of told her what to do with the eggs. I right. Don't know. Yeah. It's uh, in combination. If you think about that last chapter, there are all kinds of questions too about, you know, again, what exactly makes the eggs hatch yeah. and is, is she the mother of dragons? Is she the dragon? All kinds of questions about that, which is for another day. But I think there are lots of great hints in this chapter about what that means. Hmm. And the fact that baby was born with dragon scales <laughs> and there's, you know, obviously the, the history of, um, you know, the Targaryen ancestral bloodline. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think it all ties in and maybe this idea of, again, innocence versus something dead and cold is very representative of the Targaryen line as well as her own personal history. There's so much we could explore there. One thing that is interesting to me is that when she's in the dream I guess Jorah's voice is there, and Jorah basically says the last dragon, you know, Rhaegar is the last dragon. And then she sees what she thinks is Rhaegar, you know, full black armor, sitting atop a black horse, and she, you know, she pulls up the visor, and it's her face on the inside, mm-hmm. suggesting that she's she's a stand-in for Rhaegar in some way, or Rhaegar is a stand-in for her in some way. Which- Do you think it's that she is now replacing Rhaegar because Rhaegar is dead? Or was it that Rhaegar was never meant to be the dragon? That she, in fact, is the dragon? I think, yeah, I think that that is certainly there. I think it's important to note that, in retrospect, what we know about Rhaegar is he's not a man of violence. He's not a man of cruelty. He's a man of poetry and he's a man of generosity and of course you know he falls in love with the wrong woman and you know so he's got he's got foibles but he's not cruel right and in fact when uh khaleesi tries to save the women yeah jory even says to her you're like your brother yeah Rhaegar. Exactly. i mean not the other one not the serious that's right? right so it's almost like even in the dream here she's like okay there's two paths i i could choose one i could choose to be like my brother Rhaegar. But when she, you know, when she wakes up, she makes this proclamation that she's a descendant of Magor the Cruel. (laughs) And Anthony, you made me think of this, too. Yeah. In thinking about the the two directions, one is the red door, one is, let's say, death, right? Yeah. You know, Jorah keeps saying, look, I'll take you back to Pintos. We'll we'll escape. We'll sell your eggs. We'll, you know, lead this this quiet, peaceful life. Uh That's kind of represented by that door. I could choose that path. Right. I could just kind of go away and be happy and be rich and, you know, stay with Jorah and have comfort. And then do you think the other part of that is kind of 
foreshadowing what her eventually eventual end will be, which is really death and destruction. Interesting. Um, once she makes that choice and moves forward and says, I'm the descendant of Magor the Cruel, uh-huh. how she pretty much chosen that path, which will lead to that direction. I don't know. Right. Uh, certainly that's what happens in the show version. Yeah. I think that she doesn't want to leave. She doesn't like to leave scores unsettled. Mm-hmm. I think that like something's been promised to her, her husband promised to her that they would go across the, the salt sea or the poison waters and take the iron throne. So now she's, you know, that's been promised. She's not going to give it up. She doesn't want to give up being his wife. She doesn't want to give up his life. She doesn't want to Jorah's offering her a way out, but basically in order to take his offer, she has to leave these scores unsettled. The same thing with these men who raped and killed the girl that she had saved because they are out in the world writing free, not facing the consequences of her a- her actions. Right. The, I think she does. Sorry, she cannot ahead. leave these scores unsettled. I, that's not in her nature. I don't think. I think it's partly that, but don't you think it's also just it's my birthright and I want power. And I don't think she fully acknowledges that to herself for a long time. Mm. Right? It's the idea that oh, I keep saying I will save people and I'll free slaves and mm. I'm going to do good in the world and um, all of these things and I'm I'm going to get vengeance for those who have wronged me certainly. But I think. Part of this, too, is just, I deserve it. I'm the blood of the dragon. Um, I The usurper yeah. took away my family's destiny. It's my job to restore it. That's um, a part of her. I mean, I think she's she. I think she is a creature of duality here, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. There Which is makes something... her such an interesting character. Yeah. She's neither pure villain or pure hero. She's just an interesting combination of both. Well, and, and also, you're not sure which side is going to fully, you know, take over. Right. I think that, I mean, this very literally, this is the chapter where she decides to wake to wake the dragon. Yes. Right. And it it suggests that she could choose not to do it, or that she's something else before the dragon wakes. She, you know, it was always sort of this facade that Viserys had that he's actually a you know a kind uh older brother that has her best interests in mind that was always a lie he was always cruel i don't get the right. sense that that way with danny i think that no she actually is she actually does have this part of her that is interested in justice and interested in in innocence and interested in you know the well-being of women and children Right. That no, absolutely is a part of her, but she's going to wake that dragon, right? So. Yes. Yes. Anyway. And again, I think she tells herself in doing that it's a tool for all of those other more be- benevolent things that she wants to do. Right. And I think gradually that other part of her begins to take over. Absolutely. Um, and these seeds are there, but it's that constant kind of struggle. And you see that in a lot of these characters, but I think especially in her. Yeah. Jan, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, about this chapter in particular? Shall we talk about the mercy killing of Drogo? <laughs> what do we, what do we think about poor Drogo? I mean, as a, yeah. as a disability scholar, uh-huh. it, it pains me, right. Yeah. To think that no one sees value in Drogo's life uh-huh. anymore. Yeah. Um, it's the whole, you know, better dead than disabled. Um, 
horrible, you know, kind of assumption we have, I think, in society. Um, in, In the context of the book, of course, right, for her, Drogo was the call, right? He was the hunter. He was the writer. Um, he was her son in stars, right? Mm-hmm. And so for her, Drogo's no longer there. Um, but there's kind of nobody around to say, well, he still enjoys the sun. Yeah. Um, how do we know what's going on in his head? How do you know that he hasn't found some yeah. enjoyment in his new life? You know, nobody kind of steps up. I kind of wish someone would step up and say, actually. It's uh, true. It- Let me push back a little bit. I, I agree with everything you're saying. <laughs> If Drogo could talk, I want someone to speak for Drogo. Yeah, I, if if Drogo could talk, wouldn't he say, "Yeah, I don't want to grow. Up. I don't want this is not the life I want." Probably. I mean, Dro- knowing what we know about this culture, it's right? Drogo. Knowing about, I mean, this is it's not like this is Tyrion we're talking about. It's yeah, it's Tyrion and Drogo are such different people. If this was Tyrion, he'd be like, uh, "You know what? Just let me enjoy the sun. I, I think I'm fine enjoying the sun. We we don't have to." And this, that's a little hasty, don't you think? Um, I don't think that that's how Drogo would view his the, his life value, I suppose. Probably not, but let me throw this in, because it just, mm-hmm. just occurred to me. Do you think that Danny in this moment is killing Drogo for Drogo or for her? In the sense of she knows the choice she has made, yeah. right? She knows the path she's going to take. Yeah. Drogo doesn't fit into that path, right? Drogo really has no purpose in that path. If she were to go to Pintos, right, get some money, live out her days peacefully, there's a place for Drogo in that scenario. Um, If she had chosen that other path, do you think she would have made a different decision with Drogo Hmm. in that moment? That's interesting. I think another way you could say that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you could say that if Danny is going to become a dragon, she can't be weighted down by someone like Drogo. That's probably, I mean, I, I don't want to ascribe too many kind of nefarious motives to Danny in this yeah, moment. Sure. I, she loved him clearly. Yeah. She's devastated about what happened. Um, I think she does see it. And, and I think it is for her more of a mercy, right? Uh-huh. I know that Drogo would not want to live this way. This is not, yeah. this is not Drogo anymore. Yeah. This is not life, but just devil's advocate here. I wonder if there is a part of her that thinks, well, again, um, for me to be able to do what I need to do, there really isn't a place in this scenario for Drogo in this existence. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think that's pretty well said. I'm trying to think of a way to I'm trying to think of a way to bring in the cultural discussion to this because I think that mm-hmm. different different cultures have different ways of thinking about things like euthanasia. Right. I think that different cultures have different ways of of creating space for disability. Um and I think that in many ways sort of modern western culture has failed uh, in those ways. I think that the way that we we treat um, our elderly mm-hmm. is significantly mm-hmm. diminished uh, right. if you can if you compare other cultures. So I'm curious. I'm curious about like maybe maybe I'll like pose this to one of the, one of our medievalists to say like in a world where life expectancy is around 45 years old, 
do you revere the elders in such a way? And and what sort of what is your approach to geriatric care in a society that doesn't really have those have all the medical means that we have today? Because I almost feel like some of these yeah. medical means are a little bit of a disservice to us at, at times. Right. I mean, especially in the context of, you know, Game of Thrones. I mean, this is very historically contingent as well. Yeah, right. Um, you know, there, I think there is a place for, you know, reverence of, of elderly people in maybe Westeros and different parts, but in Dothraki culture, right? Manhood, life, quality, all of that depends on strength and vigor. Right? right. Which, again, there's a great disability narrative to be spun about that. But that's the reality of life in Dothraki culture. And so I think for all of those who surround Drogo, he isn't really alive in that sense, because that particular culture attaches so much importance, particularly for men, on strength. There's and this, for them yeah. looking at Drogo, we might say, well, he's still strong in other ways from our modern perspective. But I think for them, strength is tied to you know, physical strength and, and communication and all the things that Drogo used to yeah. do. Yeah, we find out that, that all of the Kalasar is sort of dispersed, mm-hmm. but that they've also taken all of their resources. So this is Recaro. He says, they took Cal Drogo's herds, Khaleesi. We were too few to stop them. It is the right of the strong to take from the weak. Mm, they took yeah. as many slaves as well. So it's like, all right, well, if that's your life ethic, you know, if that's your worldview, that it is the right of the of the strong to take from the weak, that's just so foreign to my sensibilities that it's hard for me to even sort of project a sense of, like, what would be a good approach to disability in this culture? What would be a good approach to euthanasia in this culture? Yeah. It's just, it's so different. Uh, you know, this, this, and of course, this is an invention of Martin's, right? Um, right. Um, but it's certainly one that Danny's not going to agree with. And we know, and we, we know the, the larger attitudes toward disability because we do have Tyrion and we see how sure. he has been stigmatized and discriminated against. And, and, you know, Tyrion, I, probably my favorite character, Tyrion says how many times, Thank goodness I'm rich. <laughs> right. If I were not rich, I'd be dead. And I think that kind of just tells us right there, um, you know, how this particular society, how useless they consider, right, the disabled mm-hmm. body and mind to be. Um, so it's interesting, you know, to to look at that as kind of a window into understanding and then kind of comparing that to our own time and, and understanding that while things have dramatically changed, there is still tremendous stigma and misunderstanding about, you know, disability today. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. 
Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Notable introductions. Well, we're introduced to the sort of the monstrous description of Danny's child. Yes. Um, we're introduced to the word dragon dew, which Danny calls <laughs> this, <laughs> calls the heat coming out off of the dragon that's causing her to sweat. That's right. And you could argue that we're introduced to Mary, Mary Mazdur's motives. I think that that yeah. might be contentious to say, but you, let, let me just say this. We see a window into her thoughts in a way we haven't in previous chapters. Right. Like we said, that mask yeah. fully comes off. That's right. Notable departures. Well, a very notable departure. Um, Drogo. Drogo uh, departs. Yep. And call. Such a big part of this first book. And in order for Danny to move on to the next stage of her narrative, he he almost had to die. Right. Um, yeah. And yet so important for her. Is there a possibility in the books that Drogo could be resurrected if the prophecy <laughs> is fulfilled? I know that's probably another subject for another day, uh, but I'm I have gonna... to admit, Anthony, I reread yeah. um, the last Daenerys chapter in A Dance with Dragons, uh-huh. <laughs> Which, you know, people have speculated she's pregnant in that chapter oh, interesting. Um, and has a miscarriage. And I thought, oh, if she's pregnant, does, is that a hint on Martin's part um, that perhaps the, the, the prophecy is being fulfilled? I, I usually feel like I'm open minded about these things. If, if, to me, <laughs> until I hear otherwise, I read this statement by, by Miri Mazdur as a very pointed statement that it will never happen yeah very cruel right yeah um it said what what does she say here right after she says her little like what people some people would call a prophecy you know the the mountain blows away like leaves and whatnot (laughs) Right right after she says that there's this interpretation by danny never 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 right she repeats it three times um it's, it even says, uh, then you, then, uh, sorry, then you will return my sun and stars and not before. Never the darkness cried. Never, never, never. So as far as Danny's concerned, Drogo is gone. And right. 
I think for people who are kind of like pining for a, a an outcome to this prophecy, <laughs> I would almost ask like, is that something that you think Danny wants? I, at this point, you know, at the end of book five. I don't think Danny wants Drogo to return. She is so far removed from the person she was. Oh, she's in book outgrown one. that person completely. So, but it is interesting how Martin ends that book with all of this reminiscing. You know, if you if you re- it's a long chapter. If you read through it, which again I did for the first time in a while last night, it's all about the past it's all about drogo and her baby yeah and her looking back to her life with you know the the dothraki and yeah. it, it's quite interesting how she has come so far from that and yet it ends on the and, and i think probably part of that is a narrative device to remind the reader remember when this happened because what's the last scene there the those old calls come riding up to her the ones that oh, she promised revenge on that's so right. I, I forgot about that's that. That's probably why, which is why I reread the chapter, Anthony, because I thought, does, I can't remember, does Martin end with her getting the revenge or is that just in the show? And this so I went back show. and reread it yeah. and thought, oh, that's where it ends. Oh. That's our last, that's our last moment with Danny in the books Interesting. where she's standing next to Drogo or Drogon, mm-hmm. uh, her, her dragon. And you see the Kalasar riding up. Right. And so, wow, what a moment to end on. So it, it it's interesting. I, that's probably why Martin took us back. Right. But again, there's that passage where she feels sick. She starts to bleed and she says, oh, it must be my moon time. But then she looks up and says, no, it's not the moon time. I've never bled this heavily. So again, I think readers have speculated. Interesting that she's probably miscarrying at the same moment she's thinking about Drogo, oh, and she's rem- and she even mentions Miriam Asdor in that chapter. So I don't oh. know. I have no idea if that's going somewhere or, um, you know, if, if I'm making too much of that. But that's what's fun about these books, trying to kind of figure out it's what it means and where it's going. Well, what a what a rich and devastating and Ugh. interesting chapter this was. So interesting. Um, yeah, I I feel like we could go on. <laughs> we could go on and on easily. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said about the placement of this in the book, and you know how this sort of sets things up for you know you could view the, you could view this chapter as okay. This isn't so much the climax of this book; it's the beginning of the next book. Right. You know, it's sets the beginning of a new come. story arc. Um, right. Um, okay. Well, I I want to be conscious of our time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me again. I'm always happy to uh, revisit Game of Thrones and have these great discussions with you. Thank you, Jimmy.